We back in the lab, we making some noise, so go turn your decibels up. Yeah. Black skin, white coat, oh no, who was nice as us? Made Jim really told us no limits, so we about to take this up. Went from mixing in the kitchen to the lab, and now nah, I can make this up. Be side, be scientist, be side, be scientist. We shining a light on the people of color to show them how fly it is. Be side, be scientist, be side, be scientist. We back in the lab with white coats on our back, trying to show what time it is. Hey. Scientist Podcast, the podcast by the Black Science Coalition Institute, or B-Side. When you hear this noise, that is our in-podcast citations. So please go to b-side.org backslash B-Scientist to hear, to see all of our citations ever. I am geoarchaeologist Jordan Chapman, and as always, we got the dope chemist herself, Jana Carpenter. And today, we have assistant professor at UCLA, archaeologist, and National Geographic Explorer, and co-founder of the Society of Black Archaeologists, Dr. Justin Donovan. How are you? Appreciate y'all. Appreciate y'all. I'm doing good out here in sunny California, so I can't complain. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, we had thunderstorms today in Georgia, so I mean, that oh, sounds no. nice. <laughs> <laughs> Well, cool. We're happy to have you on. Um, so we usually just get started by asking our guests about, you know, how they got into their field. So you're an archaeologist, which is cool because you're the first other archaeologist to be on the show besides myself. And you're like, again, one of the co-founders of the Society of Black Archaeologists. So please welcome us through how you got into archaeology. Yeah, for sure. I didn't know anything about archaeology until I got to college. I was an international business major just trying to do a study abroad somewhere. And the only sort of program that didn't have a prerequisite was to join an archeology span crew, sleep mm-hmm. in a tent in the middle of the rainforest in Belize and dig holes in the ground. Right. And um, I said, sign me up. So <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I checked it out, field school went great. I, I realized there weren't too many people uh, that look like us that do this work. I was at Howard University and of course, students are mostly African-American, but from all over the diaspora and from all over the continent, but no, none of the professors were. And mm-hmm. so that opened up a possibility for me to then see how I could fit in that unique space. And my professors were really supportive of it. And uh, yep, I guess over 10 years, 15 years later now, I'm, I'm here. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, I was kind of curious because you have a, a decent amount of experience just across different types of roles you've played in and now that you're a faculty member uh like what were some of the things or challenges or advantages uh that you've gained from all of your different experiences uh leading up to now yeah yeah you know that's a good question my i guess my background has always been diverse in the sense of the topics that i study and the way i study them and part of it has been intentional because the questions that i'm asking and that we're asking require all of these different interdisciplinary perspectives. So oftentimes I'll think of something, I'll see a question, and then I might not know how to do it, but I might know somebody who does. So my goal has always been to learn just enough to be dangerous, to ask the right questions, and then find somebody who really knows what they're talking about and (laughs) and plug them in. (laughs) That's smart. Yep. (laughs) So because of that, you know, my work touches on everything from ecology to marine science to... Um, heritage preservation and and legal aspects of heritage to everything in between. And as a result of that, I've been able to actually supervise and guide a lot of different students in different ways. I'm able to talk to colleagues in many different areas and know just enough about their subjects to elaborate on it. Um, My roommate in grad school was an electrical engineer and I had to proofread his dissertation. 
So uh, I know all about delayed tolerant networks if we ever wanted to go that route. Uh, <laughs> and it causes me then to think about <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> but now I, it allows me to, to ask questions related to archaeology that, that might have more like hard science, um, electrical engineering backgrounds or computer science backgrounds. So, yeah, it's been, it's been wild. I didn't know that about you, um, actually, uh, which is interesting because I, I did know that you were a diver and you have like, I forget what it's called. It's like a, it's a scientific diving license. So that, that makes a little bit more sense now, actually. Can you talk about that for us, though? Yeah, for sure. So I, um, I'm trained predominantly as a terrestrial archaeologist. My last year of grad school, I'm with the Society of Black Archaeologists. Dr. Ayanna Flewellen and I had the opportunity to get into underwater archaeology after meeting colleagues with Diving with a Purpose, which is a, a nonprofit that does underwater archaeological work and assists a number of government organizations in that work. They reached out to us and said, we have lots of black scuba divers. We have no black underwater archaeologists. Mm. Can we set up some type of program or figure out a way to change this? And so they um, they sort of used myself and Dr. Flewellen as the, the test subjects. And um, we worked on our swimming a bit. And then from working on the swimming, they taught us how to dive from diving. They got us working on shipwrecks and underwater heritage. And it just opened up a whole new world for us because, again, we're mostly looking for African and African diaspora history on the ground. Now, with underwater experience, we can ask those same questions underwater. And there's a whole host of sites that still need to be excavated, still need to be located, and some that have been located but need to be interpreted or reinterpreted. So, mm-hmm. on the field out there. That's no, really that's cool. hell. <laughs> so I, I kind of have like a, I guess like a two part question, and I'm gonna have to tell on myself on 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 the first one because I personally cannot swim, and I know that you two as archaeologists yeah. might have some insight on some potential generational like trauma from certain events that might have happened along the way. <laughs> um, yeah. So what is that yeah. like? You said you have a lot of African American divers. And have you ever like explored yeah. those kind of conversations? Yeah, I mean, we talk about it all the time. I think, you know, the biggest misconception is this concept that people don't want to get their hair wet. And they normally attribute it to Black women. But <laughs> I think even that's not a, a viable claim. And I don't really think it has been. Uh, especially when you talk to women who are divers. they'll That's like one of the, they ask, you know, they have routines of what you do to prep for diving. But after that, it, it, that don't even, that's not a question that comes up or a comment that comes up. Mm-hmm. Um, what I found historically is a lot of Black people that don't know how to swim don't know because they weren't trained in a swimming pool. And if you go back historically with segregation, we didn't have access to swimming pools. Most people learn in a swimming pool. The ocean has riptide. It's inconsistent. There's a whole lot of things that cause issues with, with swimming in the ocean. So because of that, there's a lack of our parents' generation, really our grandparents' generation, and then from that, the fears of the parents being able to swim as well. Now we're at a point where a lot more of us are learning how to swim, getting engaged in the water. A lot of it becomes an issue of of knowledge and access now around scuba diving, um, mainly because scuba diving is a very expensive activity. It is very much a sort of niche activity as well. You're not going to find opportunities for kids to go diving, especially if you don't live near water, mm-hmm. um, which is a whole other other issue. And yeah, and all those things. And I tell people there are some psychological aspects to diving as well. I've kind of boiled it down to two now. People who are okay with swimming, but they can't stand the idea of scuba diving. There's usually, I tell people there's a, a claustrophobia. They're usually afraid of being contained, which 
seems awkward considering the ocean is so vast, but makes sense when you realize you're engulfed in water. And then the other one is this sort of psychological fear of suffering or the idea of suffering because they're afraid of drowning. And when you boil it down, it's really not the idea of drowning. It's the idea of being in a state that you lose control. So oftentimes we do a little bit of psychological work with folks before we get them into the water. But once you get through those, it's a, it's an amazing experience. Mm, interesting. <laughs> yeah. That's really interesting actually. And I, I for one, like, I just cut my hair recently and I'm totally fine with getting it wet at this point. Yeah. It's in a natural state, you know, I can figure out what to do with that's it later. But, um, yeah. but I guess my second question was, uh, what is terrestrial archaeology? Because I am clueless. Yeah, no worries. Yeah. So archaeology falls under the field of anthropology in the United States. And it's really the study of humans and human, the human experience through material culture. Um, so the things that humans have made, things that they've built, and then other sort of related tangible objects, uh, ways in which they interact with the environment. We tell people that's different from paleontology <laughs> and other studies of dinosaurs and, and other quote-unquote prehistoric mammals. But mm-hmm. yeah, that's, that's generally what archaeology is. We normally don't even use the term terrestrial archaeology because generally when people say archaeology, that's what they mean. But terrestrial would just be that on land excavating in the ground and then underwater. Sometimes it's called underwater archaeology. Sometimes they use the term maritime or nautical if they're talking about sort of ports and other areas associated with water, but aren't necessarily under the water. Cool. Interesting. I never, I never made the connection of like the difference in terminology between like nautical versus underwater. Like in my head, even as an archeologist, I've been like, uh, if you're saying marine archeology, span I'm like, oh, you're talking about underwater, but I never really made the connection of like, if it's just like, you know, identifying like a port or something and it's not entirely the same, but that's interesting. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it can get nuanced. Yeah, uh, we, for sure. we keep those surface level conversations. And then when you get, into- <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. So, I, I mean, I think that's interesting too, because, because I kind of already knew about you like through the grapevine, I guess, but like the first place I was like, Oh, that's Justin was like, I was watching. I'm, I'm like, I'm like into like all types of science communication. So the first place, like I love, I love Vox. Like I love watching like yeah. Vox explain. So yeah. then I saw the pirate one and I was like, no fucking way. <laughs> I saw and I was like, wait a second. This dude's talking about pirates right now. That's crazy. So talk about how that happened. How, how does how do those conversations even come up? Like how how did did Vox just reach out to you? Like how does how does that stuff work? Yeah, uh, yeah, Vox reached out. I think somebody must have recommended my name. They reached out. They said they're doing this special on pirates. Um, mm-hmm. They did essential cold call. And then from there, we did just a, a general run through where they were like, we just want to, you know, talk to you for an hour about what you know about pirates and slave mm-hmm. trade and the research you're doing. And so I talked to them. And then after that hour, they were like, OK, we want to come out and film you. Um, and I told them, you know, that's fine, but I'm going to be doing field work. So if y'all can get down to to do field work, then you're more than happy to, to do it. So they they. At the time, they drove down from um, New York to Virginia and and filmed. Um, so that segment was actually filmed at Monticello. Uh, oh, nice! Still analyzing artifacts over there. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, that was a whole that opened it up to a whole other world where, again, science communication is a thing, as you mentioned, that we're actively trying to explore. I think it will only get bigger now too, especially with the fact that you know critical race theory is under attack and all these mm-hmm. other things are being attacked in the school system that leaves a new space for science communication to really pick up and expand in those areas. Um, and since then, I've done a couple more things for TV and people have seen my face and my name around. So 
Um, it's been expanding in good ways, and it's gone from a point of us reacting to whatever they want to do to them now asking us what do we want to do. Right. So that's going to get exciting. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I, I don't know if it's because I am just now like in grad school and like talk of government grants and things like that are finally starting to mm-hmm. click, and I can almost understand it. Um, but I've kind of noticed a trend of like more anthropology grants uh, and research being funded. Uh, have you noticed a trend like that? Or is there something about anthropology that's become more important, especially for people of color? Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting that um, part of that is a, a deliberate concerted effort. When COVID and Black Lives Matter hit, we were reached out by um, the Society of Black Archaeologists was reached out to by a number of different organizations. And um this is public knowledge. Now, one of the organizations that reached out was the Winogrand Foundation, which is one of the largest funders of anthropological research. And uh, we had had a series of calls with the director and and the organization. And from that, um, we set up regular conversations with us and Society of Black Archaeologists, the Indigenous Archaeology Collective, um, a few people associated with Winogrand Foundation. And they asked us, you know, what could we do to you know, help in this matter and in this time when we realize there's disparity and and other issues in the field. And so we said, what you could do is get all the major funders in anthropology in one room. And and then we said, you can go back also and get all the major archaeology center directors together in one room. And so we've been having monthly calls with all the major archaeology center directors for over a year now. And monthly calls, we used to have monthly calls with all the major funders in anthropology. And the wild thing about all this is that you know, they came to us in response to this Black Lives Matter situation. We found out that they had never actually met at all, ever, together. So mm-hmm. now this is the first time where they're saying, oh, wow, we actually have a lot of power. And we reminded them, you all have the ability to determine what direction this field goes based off of what you determine are the research initiatives and the goals. Um, and so some new funding opportunities came out as a result of that. And it's since spiraled out into all these other new projects. And we're actually talking about, you know, restructuring some of these grants, the way they're written, um, being more explicit about community engagement and community impact, in some ways funding those aspects intentionally. So it's not just something you have to scrape together funds with at the end of the day. And then science communication as another element of that, too. So you know, we're excited to see how all those things are starting to change now in this time. For sure. So I, I'm sure I've heard the story at least once before, but can you take us back a little bit in time to like when you guys started having a conversation of about when how we're going to form the Society of Black Archaeology? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we started my first year of grad school at University of Florida. Dr. Diana Flewellen was then a, a senior undergrad. Mm-hmm. And um, I had been living in Jamaica for the last year, came to Gainesville. Two very different demographics. I'll just mm-hmm. leave it at that. <laughs> and uh, and I I had always you know I went to Howard undergrad, so I knew of Florida A and M, but I had never visited. So they had a black psychology conference my first year. So I asked a couple friends if they wanted to take the drive up um, to check it out, and Ayana said, "Sure, let's do it." So we went up there to the conference, and really came back and said, you know, they've been able to make a unique space within the field of psychology that allows them to ask their own research questions, conduct their work in their own way, and really build out this this field of black psychology. What would it look like for us to do that in archeology? span And on the drive home, we started taking notes, 
Uh, we got back to the house. Uh, at the time, I think actually Ayana actually lived in the apartment underneath me as well. So we were like constantly scheming together. <laughs> and uh, we sent an email out to all the black archaeologists we knew and said, we're starting this organization. If you don't want to be a part of it, let us know. And nobody responded. <laughs> so we said, great, we got full membership now. And we got <laughs> <millions> of new people. <laughs> and then we had our annual Society for Historical Archaeology conference coming up. So we sent out another email that said, we're going to meet in the lobby at this time on this date. If anybody's interested, let's meet. And um, we had about six people show up. Actually, it was probably around nine, six to nine people. It was the most anybody in that group had ever seen Black archaeologists collect. And we had Dr. Teresa Singleton and Dr. Warren Perry in the room. And that's the second and third African-American to get a PhD in archaeology. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And from that, it was like, okay, we got something going. And if we can get the full spectrum of, of archaeologists in this room. Right. Now, that's dope. I am upset at COVID because SHA was in Philly this year. And I'm from Philly. And I was so upset. Uh, <laughs> so upset. <laughs> like, but I, I completely understand, obviously. And Philly was going through with COVID this year. Because we met in Boston. That's the first time I met you. Yeah. So, like, yeah. I was, and I knew, and, and, like, I found out in Boston, which was, like, right before COVID hit, that it was going to be in Philly in, like, two years. And I was like, I can't wait. And, like, so, but I am happy, though, because, like, having that experience in Boston, just being in a room with, like, so many Black art, it is, it is transformative. Like, I... Mm -hmm. Never would have expected that. I, I honestly, I, it's, it's weird too because I know like SBA is kind of like still kind of in some of its formative years, but mm -hmm. like I, it's it's just it's just interesting like that it happened at that point, um, and then like how much changed from that point into now, and like how big SBA has been getting since. So I'm happy to be a part of it. Yeah, no, we're happy to have you. Yeah, mm. it's, it's definitely grown beyond we could even imagine. And I think that's part of the, the ways we've been trying to actively think about how to restructure it. And, you know, thankfully, organizing work that we've done in undergrad and other areas is, has paid off because mm. we're actually trying to figure out what does the succession plan look like? And mm -hmm. and yeah, all those things. So it's been it's been good. Dope, dope. I mean, I'm definitely taking notes. I'm like the idea to just send people like, hey, if you don't want to be in this, then let us know. Like, that's so smart. Yeah. I would have never had to do that. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good one. We should have done yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, you have to make it difficult for people right. not to be involved. <laughs> and you got to make it look cool, too. Right, that's the other right. thing. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to write that one down yeah. and, and use that later. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> But Jenna, do you you had another question? Um, I lost track of it because I was I was so amazed at at the thought of it. <laughs> um, let me see. Yeah, no worries, I can talk for days. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I I've been like trying to get a, an organization off the ground in my department, which is chemistry, for other mm. students, and it's so difficult to get. I think just scientists in general are just awkward, and we don't like meeting up in person. It's just. You know, no, social fair. anxiety or whatever and so i like yeah. that's that's kind of perfect because if they have to like make the decision like no i don't want to do this then maybe <laughs> just maybe <Yeah>. show up. <laughs> right i will say with organizing i mean two key things i could not have i mean ayana and i we had to do it collectively mm -hmm. i i can't imagine one person actually making a successful organization um, yeah. and then the other element of it too is is this idea of getting buy-in from individuals so we had very loose ideas in terms of what the organization was going to be because we intentionally wanted new incoming members to help guide the direction of it. And I've always said, you know, organizations are never stagnant. They're not going to be the same as the way they were started. 
and not all the membership will stay throughout the course of the year. So it could be, you know, 10, 15 years from now, SBA does things that I don't necessarily, I'm not going to say agree with, but that I'm not necessarily interested in. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's time to start a new organization or maybe, you know, it's there's other ways to, to work around that. But being able to give up your child or, you know, this thing that you've created is an important element of all this work. I do agree to that. With B-Side, definitely look forward to the day where I'm like, all right, president number one, I'm happy to be one, but two, I'm like, if we get to two, that's amazing, honestly. Yeah. So I, I do look forward to that day. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you mentioned a lot of the different grants that you've been able to be involved in. And for one thing, I know we usually, I know I do at least, I'm not going to speak for everyone, but it is so hard to write ways that you'll be diverse and inclusive because you are the diverse and inclusive group of Mm. people that need to get funding so how do you like talk about that type of thing in in an application just in general because I always get really like uncomfortable with those sections because I'm like well should I just describe myself and my own (laughs) (laughs) right yeah. I mean, I'm intentional and unapologetic about it. I always say, too, part of the goal is to constantly train the replacement. So any project we do has a training component in, involved in it. And that's when I'm very explicit about who I'm targeting, how I'm targeting them, um, what the research is that will positively impact underrepresented communities, and some type of plan to then mentor on the back end. And that's something that everybody can do, regardless of background. Of course, you know, if you come from certain backgrounds, working in certain communities, you have better access to certain areas and certain abilities, uh, which allow you to then just think bigger and expand even larger. So, you know, for me, it was a little, I guess I cheated a little bit because I could say I co-founded the Society of Black Archaeologists, and that's a whole organization dedicated to this. But (laughs) it does help. But, you know, even in my lab and everything else, I I train my students to also think about training so that we have tiered structures of professor, graduate student, undergraduate student, and they're all working on similar projects or working with each other so you can learn those steps along the way. And then taking people and, and reaching out to people outside of academia is, is even more critical. So actively thinking, my goal is to get young people mm-hmm. because I'm learning as we go through this, specifically in archaeology, I've studied like literally how people get interested in archaeology because I asked them the same questions you asked me at the start of this, this meeting. A lot of young people are interested in archaeology. It usually wanes at around age 11 or 12 because all the toys are made for previous and there's no entertainment to keep them engaged past that. Mm. These kids don't know who Indiana Jones is. That's Laura Croft isn't considered an archaeologist to most people. Mm-hmm. And so as a result of that, their interest and knowledge of archaeology dies at around 10 or 11. What we've been saying is we actively need more content to keep them engaged beyond that. And then we need programs like you know, summer scuba programs or, you know, just outdoors programs to keep them physically involved in related areas um, as they're growing up and getting into that. So Mm -hmm. that's the sort of bigger picture vision, which you'll start to see different projects and programs roll out over the next five years or so to to address some of that. Dope, dope. Yeah. I want to kind of piggyback off of that, actually, um, because I kind of work in plantation archaeology, and I know you kind of also do too, and I know a lot of people at SBA do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to hear 
um, from you about how it is to work with like this this aspect of history that is very very painful to learn about sometimes mm. from a systematic standpoint because I know it can be challenging for me so I imagine it would be for you but um, mm. I just kind of want to hear um, your ideas about that. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I get I get similar questions or people assume often as well um, all the time. So yeah, it's good to to lay it out for me. It's interesting. So just to put it in context, most archaeologists that work in African-American archaeology and in the African diaspora tend to study slavery. And that's in part because it's uniquely situated. We all know it was a major experience, but also a lot of the written records have been biased. Mm -hmm. So archaeology has this unique, immediate and pressing opportunity to shed light on a community that we don't have a lot of written records about, particularly our own community. As a result of that, there's a lot of archaeology done on slavery, a lot of archaeology done on plantations. It can be very difficult to process uh, if you're constantly dealing with slavery, reading archives about slavery, doing that whole experience. And sometimes it can get siloed to where you associate your past and, and everything about you with this very traumatic event. For me, I've been conscious of moving beyond that. So we do do a lot of work in slavery and the slave trade. And I tell people that's critical work, but part of the reason that's critical is reclaiming these voices, mm -hmm. um, pulling out evidence of and understandings of how people actually made life during these troubling times. And for me, that's motivation then, because I'm saying, look, if these people are able to do this under these conditions, the things I'm worried about, this is mm -hmm. all, this ain't nothing. This is all gravy. Right. So, <laughs> so it gives me motivation in that way. And then I've been more intentional about doing work in archaeology that's not necessarily related to slavery. So mm -hmm. a lot of the underwater archaeology work that we've done, you know, there's new projects, Diving with a Purpose, been doing around Tuskegee Airmen plane wrecks underwater. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of post-emancipation archaeology sites that people are working at, free Black communities and towns. And then, of course, my next project that we're working on uh, goes way beyond that, and I can talk about that later as well. Cool. I didn't know you were... We're going to have to talk about it because I didn't know you were working on something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool, <laughs> Always. Cool. <laughs> yeah, so I'm just curious about, um, we kind of briefly mentioned it earlier, and I, I know it's probably a little different in California than it is here in Georgia, but the whole notion mm -hmm. of this ban on cr critical race theory and, and whatnot, mm -hmm. um, has that been a topic or something that you've had to reevaluate in your own course courses and things like that. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Thankfully, I haven't here. I, I was at University of Florida, where even though they didn't have that mandate, you could still feel like tension in the room when people, when the conversations would come up and have to address it in certain ways. The beautiful thing about being over here is I feel like I don't necessarily need to do that as much, although there is there are needs, of course, to clearly articulate these things. I was just on the radio at San, in San Francisco last week and this topic came up specifically in relationship to the things that are going on throughout the South right now. And then also there's a reparations committee that's happening here in California as well. And, you know, I was talking to the host and I told the host that I really, I feel bad for the students in these school systems that are going to have to figure out a way that aren't going to have this knowledge of critical race theory. They are going to be at the deficit. I said black and brown communities have been educating our kids outside of and beyond the school system from the beginning. So we're going to find a way to get this information to our people. And it might come in the, the form of community lectures. It might come through other means. And this also 
reinforces the need for us to get more heavily involved in science communication and to find new and creative ways to develop programming around these topics because they can ban it in the school system, but they can't ban it on television. Mm-hmm. They can't ban it on the radio. They can't ban it in the music and the lyrics, which is a right. whole other conversation. So we're going to just have to branch out and uh, do what we do best. <laughs> yeah, that's so encouraging, honestly, because when I think about it, I, I got really honestly afraid for the mm. the future of me and the and the generations like coming after me, you know. But I never really thought about it optimistically in the fact that we just have to become a stronger community, like as a whole. And that, yeah, there are other mm-hmm. ways to like navigate this and have conversations about it. That's a really good takeaway yeah. from that. Thank you. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah, I try to see glasses half full. And then <laughs> if they're not half full, then we got to figure out a way to get it half full. So <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. That's a, that's a good outlook to have. <laughs> grad school has made me so. Uh, <laughs> Mm. I gotta gotta remind myself to stop doing that (laughs) yeah for sure yeah I mean I think you asked about that earlier too Jenna um what that transition has looked like as you become a professor I mean we've had um people talk about that transition but I know um I think Justin that you're kind of you I don't think you graduated that long ago honestly from like your PhD program yeah, you know, I feel like a perpetual student. I graduated in 2017, so it's been about five years since yeah. I had my PhD. I did four years of postdoc and just started mm-hmm. here at LA this year. Yeah, the transition has been interesting. For me, I when I started the PhD and like committed to it, I was very intentional with how I was moving. So like my first year, I said, I'm going to be writing most of my life. I need to learn how to actually write. And I got the little strunken white or strunken white, whatever it is, the little book that teaches you like grammar, basic grammar rules. And Mm. I was watching videos and editing and doing all these things just to improve my writing. I did the same thing for public speaking. Uh, Started looking at how, you know, how comedians are able to command a stage for an hour and people will sit there and watch somebody just talk for one hour and enjoy it and figure it out. Okay, what does timing look like? Cadence, circle back, like all these things that you have to be aware of. And now with teaching, I'm actively doing the same thing. So I take notes after every class, every day, what jokes landed, what jokes didn't, <laughs> what people were interested in, what they were really waiting for me to skip over. <laughs> and, and really hoping to take that to another level so that we can, we can really build this out. And then mentoring um, and creating a lab, because that's something that we're never really taught to do, but is fundamental to the way that this whole system works, especially if we're trying to train our replacements and train more people in it. So this spring break, I just experimented with this idea of bringing all my lab students out to do field work for one student's dissertation. Mm. And the idea was that everybody would see what the process looks like in terms of how to set up a dissertation project, how to visit a field site, have the phone calls on speaker so everybody can hear the conversations and introduce themselves. And then, yeah, document it. And then they assisted one person in setting up their project. When the next person goes, we'll do the same thing. And now you've got experiences and, and resources in all these different areas and you've seen it all coming. So hopefully it'll inform how they move forward and build camaraderie too. Right. I really like that idea actually, because that's one thing I've thought about as like I go through grad school is like how to become a good teacher and mentor. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely interesting that you've taken it to the point where you're like, I'm going to document how this is going to happen. Mm-hmm. And like, because that's not something that, that happens and I don't I 
won't lump I won't necessarily lump UGA into that and say it's like on UGA. <laughs> I think that's like a, a problem everywhere that like we are expected to go from researcher at like the undergraduate level and then once you're done with that it's like oh go get a phd or not go get a phd but once you have your phd go get a researching job and it's like well you're probably going to have to do in two within two uh, which mm-hmm. usually means like some classwork or some coursework and also some research and that coursework part is where it's like that's really crucial because as you've been saying um, since we started these conversations that generation that's behind us we're not really doing the service if we're not actively trying to improve how we communicate that information. So I think that's really interesting. Yeah, definitely. And it's about understanding people's strengths and weaknesses and understanding what they like and don't like. Because if you get somebody that really likes an element of the work and is really committed to it, they can take it, you know, 10 times where you, you could take it and the questions they ask are going to be different. The way the research is done is going to be different. And that's just going to expand the fields mm-hmm. more widely. So my next question is that you're a National Geographic Explorer. Like, <laughs> I just think about that sometimes, and I'm like, that that is kind of mind blowing. Like, and I, I, that's mind blowing to me. How do you feel about that? <laughs> yeah, I had no idea what it was mm-hmm. until I got it, and when I got it, I sat there and meditated on it for a little bit. Just <laughs> literally, like, sat down in the corner of my apartment, like, what just happened to me? Right. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's wild. It completely changed the game. And I don't, I didn't realize at the time, like how transformative it was until I'm starting to see what it looks like now. But yeah, so the Emerging Explorer, for those who don't know, it's pretty much like a, you're nominated in a secret ballot by usually existing Emerging Explorers to, for some, or for this essentially award. Some people call it like a mini MacArthur. I don't know if that (laughs) that term holds up, but (laughs) they give you a large chunk of money. You're allowed to do with whatever you're allowed to do, whatever you want. And um, the the understanding is that you are doing something in your space or in your field that is going to be transformative. So we just want to support you in whatever way we can. So as an emerging explorer, you know, they gave us this lump sum of money. I had to go to SBA and give SBA a donation off the top and then started funding some of the ideas that I had. So now we have a thousand dollar field school grant that's allowed for non-US-based archaeologists mm-hmm. to help fund their research. And then we have two $500 conference assistance grants, which help people get to conferences anywhere in the world. Um, And I did that as sort of seed funding to then be able to use that to fundraise so we can say we have these programs going. And then I used some of that fund as well to help fund my master's students' research when COVID shut down universities and we weren't allowed to use university funding for that. So that helped as well. Um, But probably more than all of that is the fact that when you become one, they sort of introduce you to the network of National Geographic. And it really forces you to think differently about your work because now you're talking to Nat Geo kids, you're talking to National Geographic Television, you're talking to people in very different spaces than what you would have traditionally done as a scientist or as an academic. Um, So that's been exciting and seeing how people are able to use these things and think differently about how their work is done and how it's presented um, has been good. Yeah, Yeah, man, that's... Uh, congrats. That's amazing. <laughs> Appreciate it. <laughs> I guess my last question is, I've kind of noticed that there, there's kind of a, not necessarily a lack, but there's on the downcline of, of educators in general. Um, and mm-hmm. I kind of recently had this conversation where a faculty member kind of thought, you know, postdocs are, are standard, like that's how it has to be if you want to be a faculty member or 
hold a, a tenure position. Is that something you've ever um, thought like a necessary part of your track into academia or uh, do you have any other thoughts mm. on it? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the benefits of me being able to move the way that I move is that I I was never beholden to this idea of staying in academia. Mm-hmm. Um, I said my parents raised, uh, you know, four kids without college degrees. I got a PhD. I'm sure I could take care of myself in some <laughs> other field. I don't have to stay in academia if I don't if it don't work, if it don't suit me, if I'm not happy. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was always in the back of my head. I had exit plans and plan A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Um, just in case the plan A didn't work out. (laughs) So um, that was there. With that said, one of the other things I realized very early on in grad school was that academia is a game. It's a system. They're all based on metrics. And these metrics have been defined by the academy. They're different for different disciplines. So, you know, hard sciences, y'all looking at H indexes, what publication records are, you know, what's the impact of this research in the field. For me, I know what I need to do just to get enough to the point where people say, okay, that box is checked. That allowed me to say, okay, as long as I check this box, I can begin to create my own metrics. Mm -hmm. Because now I can say, okay, I did the paper and the publication. I'm doing terrestrial archaeology. I have a field school. I'm actually going to bring in and expand this program so we have a youth education component, so that we have TV and media on the site, so that we have a pipeline of training individuals. And then I'm going to publicize what I'm actually doing. And now that provides a metric where people are saying, okay, well, Justin did this. Are you all able to also build out a pipeline program? And now that pipeline program becomes something that gets praised as a sign of you know, effort in the field. Mm-hmm. Um, so part of that requires that sort of thinking of what you want your metrics to be. And also realizing to separate yourself from academia, because one of the other things I learned in being from public institutions to private institutions, especially as a person of color, they will constantly shift these metrics any way that they want to, uh, if they don't want you in them or if they don't want you participating in some way. So, you know, some people might say, okay, the H index is what's important. How many publications, citations do you have? And then once you hit that mark, then they'll say, okay, well, we need top tier journals. How many top tier journals are you in? And then you get in there and they say, okay, well, are you in science or nature? And then you get there and then they say, okay, well, what is your other? And it just keeps going. It's never ending. Right. And and so, again, that made me realize, like, okay, I don't need to be following your metrics. I'm going to do just enough to get the tenure and to do those things. But I'm going to set my own metrics and hold myself to a standard. That's different. So that's that's really mind opening because one thing I've been thinking about, like as just trying to get through grad school is I am very on the fence about academia. And I and this will also lead into another question as I'm rambling. But um, so I've been thinking about that and like, do I want to stay in academia as a geologist, archaeologist? Eh, But um, there are other avenues. So one thing I thought about is doing like science policy. And trying to mm. figure out how to, do, how to do that along with the science communication that and helping out with the science communication that b-side does so that's one thing one way i've kind of thought about it um and it seems like you've kind of also like moved into some aspects of policy because i know you're working on some legislative things is that a mm. good way to phrase that i don't know but i know there's yeah, like that's to, okay that's the way to open it up can you explain it for us <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. You know, part of it, too, is Society of Black Archaeologists, as the organization has become bigger, it's gotten more clout and we've been able to do more things. And so I tell people, like, as we have access to more spaces, the type of work we do is naturally going to change. So I, it actually started out as a paper in a grad school class. I wrote a paper arguing for an African-American version of NAGPRA and to see what that would look like in the United States. It was, you know, a final paper for a class. I presented it at a conference. Turns out the president of the organization was sitting in the audience and said, you know, we have a legislative component to our organization. Um, we would want to seriously think about taking this up as an issue. And to their credit, Society for Historical Archaeology took that on and worked with legislators and developed a whole concept around it. A, a variation of it was proposed on the House floor, the Senate floor last year, and I believe proposed in the House this year, one of the two. Uh, there's pros in Congress, and essentially it's arguing for the protection of African-American cemeteries and burial remains, and it's funded in this latest iteration. This is after a series of conversations we had had with community members and people reaching out to us, upset about the fact that a lot of Black cemeteries are getting bulldozed, um, getting negatively impacted by power lines and other construction projects, and there was little or nothing they could do about it. There's also issues around heritage law. Mm -hmm. um, in order to be designated a heritage site, you have to have usually a burial site. You need to have somebody significant buried there. And based off of the way we know slavery and racism works, Black people weren't considered, quote unquote, significant in American history unless you were a Frederick Douglass or a Harriet Tubman. Right. So people who are prominent in their communities wouldn't have been in a position to be um, eligible for these nominations. But this legislation offers a new opportunity for that. Um, so actually, I have to give credit to um, to Chip Caldwell, who kind of pushed us to to write a publication for um, Nature uh, around this topic. And that's what led to an article that was arguing for this, which then led to larger conversations um, with a number of individuals. And it's been getting um, steam as, as more and more people are sort of gathering behind it. On the other end of that spectrum, I am now a board member for the National Marine Sanctuary Foundation. Uh, which is the nonprofit of all of the marine sanctuaries in the United States. And that has been critical for me because I'm the only underwater archaeologist on that board. So they had been focusing mostly on marine biology and on water quality and, and sort of climate change issues. And now they're asking, you know, what are we missing in terms of heritage? Mm. So now when they advocate on the Hill, we don't use the word lobbying, but when we advocate on the Hill, <laughs> um, <laughs> we have the ability to talk about cultural heritage that's underwater and the need to preserve and protect it as well. And I'm sure that you know, throughout the course of this work, there's going to be new spaces that I have access to that are going to change the way that all of this works. And um, yeah, just trying to constantly figure out how to use these avenues to expand the conversation and, and get more things done. I tell us, you know, all my students and I tell us as academics, chasing impact to me is more important than chasing a project. So what can I do that would have the biggest impact? And I realize as I progress in this work in different areas, my ability to have an impact that's bigger is going to look different and I need to be able to change with that. For sure. As you were talking about it, I'm like in my head, like I'm not a like super religious person, but like I think about the ancestors and I'm like, like you're literally doing like the ancestors work <laughs> right there. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> so that's amazing. Say I say, yeah. Right. <laughs> amazing. <laughs> Jenna, do you have any like final questions? I think you uh, said you already... Uh, I don't think so. I mean, I, I have thousands of questions, right? But I, 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 I'm, I'm trying to, to but we gotta let just. 
<laughs> yeah, but just in general, I'm just really uh, impressed with with the work that you're doing, and and I think we all find it really important to continue to speak on these things. And I just really appreciate you coming on to the show for sure. Yeah. Thank you, I appreciate it. Uh, one thing we do at the end of each episode is we ask our our guest, "How do you encourage other people to be scientists?" Mm, good question. I encourage it by showing that they're already doing it. Everything they do in their life is usually an experiment of some sort to either make themselves better or just out of their own inquisitiveness. And I encourage them to to interrogate a lot of things that they see around them and ask, why is this happening? How is this happening? And how can I potentially change it? Um, one of the things I tell people, too, is that, you know, colonialism is a system and it's been developing and experimenting for over 500 years. Uh, it's not going to change overnight, but it also means that we have the potential to create an alternative system that either goes counter to it or runs separate from it. Um, so that's where I want people to think is that systems level thinking where it's not an individual, a community or an institution, but we're thinking about an entire system where just by our mere existence, we are perpetuating it and others as well by their mere existence are perpetuating it. Um, so that's one way I encourage them. And then, you know, my latest project that I'm working on now uh, National Geographic messed up and asked me what would I do if I had unlimited resources. <laughs> so I had to go to the drawing board and um, <laughs> I said, you know, as a maritime archaeologist, I'd want to look for the Black Star Line and for Marcus Garvey's legacy underwater. Mm. And so that's what we've been kind of working on in the background for the last few months now. I had a chance to to virtually meet Dr. Julius Garvey, Marcus Garvey's son, mm. uh, proposed the idea and it got some some good buy in. And uh, now we're starting this quest slowly but surely to to begin to look for those wrecks. That's um, amazing. And see where that goes. Yeah. <laughs> it takes us beyond this conversation of slavery into a whole new area. So I'm excited to see it. For sure. Well, I mean, this is a great conversation. Um, honestly, sometimes like, I was super excited to do this today because I remember like when I first saw you in Boston, like I saw you across the room and I was like, I honestly, I, like in my head, I was like, that's a celebrity, right? I got it. Like, And I don't know if you remember, honestly, <laughs> but I was so nervous to talk to you. Yeah, man. I, I just remember, I, I think I bought you Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> and like that... That made it in my mind that I'm like, I'm glad that, again, like I said there a little bit early, uh, a while ago, but like, this is why I'm like happy to be a part of SBA because like just meeting like someone who's like basically a celebrity in black archaeology and mm -hmm. then um, like having like the, I don't know, but like the spirit to just buy me like a $2 cup of coffee from Dunkin' Donuts, that's, <laughs> that is true. Like that's, I, it's $2, but it's really, it's, you really can't put a price on that. And I'm so happy that you did that and that I got a chance to meet you that you came on the podcast today. Y'all got to like oh, break man, bread with each other, you know? Right. And I appreciate it because, you know, I think you probably just started B-Sire around that time. And I we kind of did, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And now it's snowballed into it's, this. It's starting. Thing. Yeah. And that, I mean, just to embarrass Jordan a little more, he was just like, Jana, he's been on Netflix. This man's been on Fox. This man is not to you. And I was like, that's insane. I have been happy you well for a little while. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. But yeah, I mean, even that is like you enter in that space and you're like, oh, no, there are people that are doing this, this, and this as mm -hmm. well. And so that that bar changes now, and it's like, okay, what can I, what can we do with this? For sure. But again, we're gonna let you go. Um, again, I cannot thank you enough for coming on the podcast. I truly appreciate it. Um, I'm happy to be a part of SBA family, 
And Jenna, always thank you for being a dope chemist. And to everyone listening, don't forget to be scientists. Yeah, we appreciate y'all. <laughs> be Scientist is a podcast by the Black Science Coalition and Institute, or BSI, a 501c3 nonprofit. Be Scientist is hosted by both Jenna Carpenter, chemist, and BSI's research and development officer, and Jordan Chapman, geoarchaeologist, and BSI's president. Music is produced by Delarallo, and lyrics are by Ed Yana. Special thanks to Michael Mike Castor Marshall and the Plaza Abbey Studios. If you'd like to donate to B-Sci, visit our official website, bsci.org. That's b-sci.org. Your donation supports the B-Scientist and B-Sci's other projects. We couldn't do it without you. So please tune in next time and always be scientists.